Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. I want to just look briefly this evening at John 1 verse 29. I may go a little bit further down the chapter if we have time. But just John 1 and verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Absolute gem of a verse, isn't it? I suppose that if there still is a best known verse in the Bible, in this modern age, it has to still be John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But I think this one must come a close second. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. It's a verse that has inspired art and classical music and song and countless thousands of sermons and talks. Bishop J.C. Wright of Liverpool many years ago wrote of this verse and he compared it with a star in a clear night sky. For every star shines and every Bible verse is inspired and every verse is a star. But just sometimes there is a star that shines brighter than any other star. This verse shines brightly and stands out clearly in the galaxy of God's word. John's Gospel, I'm sure you know, is different from the Synoptic Gospels, from Matthew, Mark and Luke. It's written for a different purpose. It's written to demonstrate the deity of Christ. It's an evangelistic call to all of those who are unbelievers. It's written to strengthen the faith of Christians. In John 20 and verse 30 and 31, John himself actually sums this up. He says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life, pardon me, through his name. (coughs) Sorry. So John's Gospel begins with that great hymn of praise, the prologue, demonstrating that the Lord Jesus is the Word became flesh who dwelt among us, talking about his eternal power and Godhood. So the passage that we began, verse 19, chapter 1 and verse 19, begins a brand new section of the book. 
A section of the book where Jesus is revealing himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Anointed One, to a series of ever-widening groups of people. And the first of those groups of people is John and his disciples. Chronologically, if you want a historical background to this, this passage occurs after the baptism of Jesus and after his temptation in the wilderness. In his baptism, he declared his earthly mission. He takes upon himself our responsibility to keep the law. He fulfills the law for us and he takes our imperfections and our sins and our coming short and in his temptation and his victory over the devil, his own perfect obedience to the written word of God is demonstrated. Now he comes to John. John, looking at him, declares for all to hear, Behold, should be a comma there. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. I want to look at it in three simple statements. I want to say Christ coming to John. Christ coming to save. Christ coming to us. Christ coming to John, he's walking. John is baptizing beyond Jordan. And in verse 29, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him. And he declares that he is the Lamb of God. Look, behold, look there. The Lamb of God. I suppose when people think of a lamb, the first thing we would think of automatically is its helplessness. We see the lambing season starting, I suppose, fairly soon. It seems to stretch every year. And in the spring of the year, lambs are born and we see them in the fields and they need to be protected. I wonder how many lambs are lost every year because of aggression from wild animals or from dogs. Lambs, we associate them with the most gentle and the most meekest of creatures. Certainly, when Isaiah was describing the suffering servant in chapter 53, he was describing someone with a similar demeanor. In Isaiah 53 and verse 6, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. So we think of a lamb in those terms. And that's certainly true of the Saviour who went to the cross meekly 
as a lamb to the slaughter. But that's not the primary idea that's being conveyed here by John. Not by John the Baptist, and not by the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel. A lamb, you see, primarily to the people who were listening that day, is a sacrificial victim. John's addressing his own disciples. There are crowds of people who have come to Jordan to be baptised. He's standing at the waterside and he sees Jesus walking towards him and he says, Behold, look, the Lamb, the Lamb of God. They would immediately have associated the Lamb of God with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Those crowds of Jewish listeners, those candidates for baptism who were all around him, he is talking to people who would know exactly what he meant, what he wants them to pay attention to, to behold, for a lamb is going to die. Remember, that's a concept that went right back to the beginning of the Bible, right back to the book of Genesis, right back to when Abraham took his son Isaac up a mountain to make a sacrifice. You know, the conversation between the two is intriguing. Genesis 22 and verse 7 begins, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father... And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide a lamb. And when it came to the Passover, when it came to the night when the children of Israel were released and from their bondage and their slavery in Egypt, it was the blood of a lamb that was slain and was placed on the, on the doorposts and on the lintels that showed the angel to pass over that home, the lamb with the shed blood. So the underlying purpose of the meek and helpless lamb in Isaiah 53 was to be led helplessly to the slaughter. But you see, this sacrificial victim is not just any lamb. Think of John's words. There were many of those lambs that were slain every day at the temple, every morning, every evening, Lambs were slain. It's described in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Over and over again, sacrificial victims being led to the altar, being put to death, pointing to this one man that we are to behold. John's words are an indication. You've seen those lambs. You've been to the temple. Now look, here's the lamb. But it's not just any lamb. It's God's lamb. This is the lamb that was prophesied. Behold, 
the Lamb of God. In a very practical sense for us as Christians, there's a very simple lesson in what John has said. Because we, as we seek to live for the Lord each and every day, we look to our Lord Jesus as our Master, the one whom we must obey, don't we? We see him as our King before we bow, don't we? We regard him as our Prophet, whose word, the word of God, brings us conviction of sin and instructs us in the Christian way. And we think of him as our coming Redeemer, the one who will come to take us home in the Father's timing, the one who will come to judge the world. All of those things are of importance, but primarily as sinners saved by grace, when we think of our Saviour, in all of those offices, let us remember first and foremost that he is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for me, Calvary's cross. Here's Paul in Galatians chapter 6. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. God forbid that I should glory in anything but the Lamb of God slain for sinners. Christ coming to John. John saying, Behold, look, there's the Lamb of God. There is the sacrificial victim. But look at the second thing. Christ coming to save. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. See, there's two separate aspects of this particular part of the verse that we need to explore. We need to look at the effectiveness of this sacrifice and we need to think a little bit about the extent of the sacrifice. The first thing that we see here is that he takes away our sins. I think that's really important. Christ's sacrifice is effective in its power to save. He's not simply offering to take away our sins on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. He's not even just promising to take away our sins. His power over sin is so great that it is effective. He takes away our sins. It's done. He removes sin from us. And he does so by taking it upon himself. Remember Pilgrim's Progress, where Pilgrim carried that great burden upon his back. It was the burden of sin, wasn't it? Sin and guilt, misery. And he's only relieved of that burden when he brings it to the cross and leaves it there. 
And it's never to be remembered again. That's what Jesus done for us. He has taken our great burden, our great debt of guilt and sin, and it's far away from us. It's buried in the depths of the sea, never to be brought up again. It's effective in its power to save. It takes away our sin. And it's effective in its endurance. When I was reading about this through the week, I noticed that several commentators point out that the word takes away here is one single word, ero in Greek, and it is present tense. I suppose the easiest way to be looking at that would be to indicate that Jesus is the saviour for every age, isn't he? He's just as able to save now as he was in New Testament times. His power to save has never faltered. It has never changed. People coming to Christ now find that their sins are forgiven just as they were in the days of the first apostles. But more than that, J.C. Ryan notes here again that Jesus is continually taking away our sin. Even as believers, whether we like to believe it or not, we are sinners. We're continually sinning right up until the time we die. And we go to be with the Lord and we will be freed from sin forever. And because we're continually sinning, we must be continually examining our lives and repenting of our sin and receiving the forgiveness for our sins which was purchased for us at Calvary. He takes away our sin present tense continually takes it away. Not only is it effective in its power to save, effective in its endurance, but it is effective in achieving that for which it was intended. See the language again. When John talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And he's not talking about our sins, the symptoms of our sinfulness. You know, the specific sins that we all commit, that long list of infringements of the law that stain our characters, the actions and the words and the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, Sins that I have committed that would not just fill a book, that would fill a library. Those are just the symptoms of what's going on in my heart. John says, Jesus takes away the sin. The word is singular. It's the root cause of all our sinful natures. The Greek word for sin here, hamartia, is the principal cause sin. It's our proneness to sin. It's our propensity to sin. It's our guilt. It's the imputation of sin that comes by human nature from our common parents, from Adam. Jesus just doesn't deal with the symptoms of the disease. He deals with the cause, the very roots of our sin. 
Now, can you see how effective the saving work of Christ is? You see how wonderful our salvation is? He has taken away our sin. And both Johns, both John the Baptist and the inspired author of this of this gospel, knew that Jesus has the power to take away our sin, to remove it forever and ever, and to remove it right at the very root. I found a tree growing two years ago in the garden. We have a hedge and a trell- it grows on a trellis and it flowers nicely in pink flowers every year. It's clematis. And a couple of years ago, I noticed a little sapling growing up through the trellis. I thought to myself, oh, that's lovely. A wee bird has been flying over and it's had a seed in its beak. It's dropped the seed. The seed's taken root and it's growing. I'll keep that wee sapling growing. But the problem was it was coming up through the trellis. And I said to her, it doesn't matter about the trellis, as long as the sapling grows. This year, last year, the sapling was taller than me. And up until about a week ago, it was taller than the garage. And a man came to work in the garden a few weeks back and he said to me, you'll need to cut that down. Why can I cut it down? Why do I need that? Because that's an ice tree. That's a wild tree. That's going to grow higher than the house. That's going to grow until it's about two foot wide. That's going to uproot your your path and it's going to knock over the wall of your garage and it's going to destroy your garden. You have to get rid of it. So this week, I promised I wouldn't do anything with it while there were leaves on it. I'm kind to it. So I waited till the leaves died in the tree and I went out this week and I cut it down ruthlessly. But I couldn't get out the roots because the roots are under the path and I can't get at them without taking out the trellis and the clematis lifting the path, and the path is stone. So I have no idea whether somehow or another it's going to come back. The point I'm making is simply this. When Jesus dealt with our sin, he didn't just cut it off, the leaves and the branches and the bark, the boughs, He uprooted it completely so it is effective. We also have to see the extent of the sacrifice very quickly because it's all very good so far. But we can't neglect the inspired word of John when he tells us that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. The the word here simply is cosmos. It's the the planet, the round orb on which we live, which God created. We can't argue with that, but we have to understand it because John is not here suggesting a universal salvation. 
He's not telling us like universalists believe that through the death of Christ, everyone in the entire world is saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what John meant. The world here includes more than the Jews who are standing around listening to John the Baptist, for the Jews thought the Messiah would come to save them, but that they, the Gentiles would be overthrown, the Jews of that particular day. And they were ignoring the words of the prophet Isaiah and other parts of the Old Testament. Isaiah telling us that in Isaiah chapter 42, that the Lord has called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand, speaking of the suffering servant and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. He would be the Messiah of every race, the Messiah of the world, the saviour of the world, a perfectly valid use of the Greek cosmos to refer to the human race extending outside of the Jewish nation. Same heathen world to which God called Paul to be a witness. Romans 11 and 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. And Jesus used exactly the same word when he said to us in Matthew chapter 5 and 14, ye are the light of the cosmos, the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Let's not get confused over this. Jesus is the saviour of the world in the fact that his atoning sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for all the sins that ever were committed in this world. Heidelberg Catechism deals with this in Lord's Day 15 and question 37, where it talks about how by his suffering that he has taken upon himself in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. And yet the Catechist teaches us also that only those who are his will be enabled to Receive that atoning sacrifice. No rational explanation that Christ's death is sufficient for the whole world, but is efficient only for those who are his, who will repent, who have been convicted of their sin by the Holy Ghost, who are called to come to Christ. So we preach the gospel to every person. For we don't know who the Lord has chosen to be his. We don't know who the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to. We do not know who will repent. But we do know that there is sufficient saving merit in the death of Christ for every man and woman, boy and girl. So we proclaim the message of salvation freely and openly. And we let God the Holy Spirit do his saving work. Lastly, Christ coming to us. I suppose we could finish verse 29 with our explanation of the word world. 
But John doesn't finish there. There is one more thing to be said. Because in his earlier ministry, when he was preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah, in Matthew 3 and 11, he had said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now he says it again. The same is he which baptizeth thee with the Holy Ghost. You see, Christ's saving work at the cross is not theoretical. It's not something to be discussed and debated about. It's never some kind of a religious perspective to be meditated upon. Christ's saving work changes lives. It is a work that works. The Holy Spirit applies that saving work to our hearts so that as Christ indwells us, as we are given new life in Christ and new love for Christ, we are new creations. And that is called here by John baptism. You might wonder why. But John's John's hearers and his disciples knew exactly what that word meant. He had been baptizing people who were repentant, turning away from sin, turning to God, a new life. Jesus is the mighty Savior, the one who brings us into his church and into his kingdom through this saving work of the Holy Spirit. So verse 33 says, He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said to me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Just for a moment, because it's important that we see what this baptism is that John is talking about. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. Mark this one in your Bible. It's a very important verse. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Now when do we become part of the body of Christ? At regeneration. When the Holy Spirit indwells us. Called baptism by John. Spiritual baptism. It's called baptism by Paul. Spiritual baptism. A different kind of baptism than the baptism of water that John was doing. Baptism with water is very, very important. Baptism with water points us to how our sins are washed away in the blood of Christ. Baptism with water is an outward sign that we are his. But you know you may well get to heaven without it. 
It's not a saving ordinance. Salvation is purely by grace through faith alone. The thief on the cross never had time to be baptized, but he's in heaven in paradise with the Lord. But you won't be in heaven without this spiritual baptism, this new birth, this regeneration that apply is it that is Christ's saving work applied to your life and mine in a contemporary sense right here and now. So salvation is accomplished. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, his saving work. And it is applied. The same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.